All right, uh, I'll give everybody a minute to find their seats, and uh, there are handouts in the back if you haven't had a chance to pick one up yet. Uh, so if you haven't, you may want to do that. And uh, otherwise, I'll pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and get started with this week's lesson. Father, we thank you, uh, as always, for the opportunity that we have to gather with one another and to learn together from your word. And we ask that you would guide us with your Holy Spirit as we walk through your word today, uh, that you would help us to interpret it well, and that you would uh, teach us, that you would speak to us personally through your word and help us to uh, learn what it is and, and how to conform um, all the more to your image and to uh, forsake what is the, the opposite of your image in idolatry. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, okay, so uh, at this point, um, actually, Nathaniel, if you'll go ahead and transition to the next slide. Um, we are kind of turning a corner in the class, and um, uh, our first two weeks were spent talking about what it means to be made in the image of God, um, an introduction to the topic in the first place, and then a walk through Genesis 1 and 2. And then we spent our third week talking about what happens to the image of God in the fall. Last week we had a discussion about what we've, um, or sort of a Q&A about what has been discussed so far in those first three weeks. And this week we are uh, leaving Genesis, moving beyond Genesis, and beginning to look at uh, the image of God in the rest of biblical theology and ultimately moving toward the New Testament. Um, and then starting next week, we'll be entirely in the New Testament as we look at Jesus Christ as the image of God. And then in week seven, um, how Jesus Christ as the image of God redeems the image of God in us. And so today can be thought of a little bit as... Um, as, in one sense, exploring further effects, you could call this lesson further effects of the fall, um, further effects of um, the image defaced in the fall. And we'll be talking a lot about the subject of idolatry today. Um, but another way to look at this lesson would be to look at it as an exploration of the Bible's remarkable silence about the image of God um, for much of, uh, much of Scripture after Genesis 1 through 3 until we get to Christ in the New Testament. Uh, so after Genesis 1 through 9, it's remarkable, the image of God language almost it all but completely drops out of the Old Testament. Uh, and, and this is also precisely where the language of idolatry picks up. So the image of God language suddenly disappears, language of idolatry picks up, and then the language of imaging, um, imaging God, reemerges in Scripture with the arrival of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, who both redeems the image of God in us and breaks the power of idolatry. So this is probably not coincidental something's going on here. The image of God language uh, disappears, um, idolatry language picks up. Image of God language reappears with Jesus Christ, um, who redeems the image of God in us. A former professor of mine at Gordon-Conwell, Rick Lentz, uh, has put it this way in his book, Identity and Idolatry. 
At the point where the language of image drops out, the language of idolatry becomes prominent. And secondly, the reemergence of the language of imaging is most strongly connected to the arrival of Jesus Christ, who is both the restorer of the image of God and the one who ultimately breaks the power of idols by, by overcoming the temptations of the evil one. So part of what we see here, is, though, is that this space between uh, Genesis 1 through 3 and the arrival of Christ in the New Testament is largely occupied by uh, this theme of idolatry uh, in place of the image of God. And so one question to explore in the meantime, one question that we'll explore today, is what happens when God's image bearers become image makers? What happens when God's image bearers become image makers? Uh, that's the main question that I'll be addressing today. Um, so, uh, to go a little bit further into the subject, uh, what happens to the image of God after Eden in, uh, in the Old Testament? Uh, in the previous weeks, we have seen that the word for image, selim in Hebrew, uh, usually refers to graven images or idols elsewhere in the Old Testament. In fact, that is, that is its exclusive use in the Old Testament after um, Genesis 9-6. And after Genesis 9-6, this word is never used positively again in the Old Testament. It's used exclusively in the context of idolatry. Um, we have also seen, of course, that one of the functions of human beings as the image of God, part of what it means for humans to be um, made in the image of God in Genesis 1 through 2, or 1 through 3, we can say, um, is to, to represent God, um, to be God's uh, representation, so to speak, uh, within creation, which is his holy temple, and in that way um, to fill creation with, uh, with his glory and by filling it with his likeness. It was part of the original intent for human beings, part of what it means to be made in his image. And uh, so it's not entirely by accident that there's this relationship between what it means to be made in the image of God and the concept of idolatry. What they both have in common is the idea of being an image of God. An idol is an image of a God, and human beings were created to be um, God's image. And, um, and so we explored that a little bit in the previous weeks. Uh, and, and from that perspective, we can look at, you can think of um, the image of God and idolatry almost as opposite sides of the same coin. What they have in common is this idea of um, imaging God and um, representing God in some way. Uh, from there, they, they diverge, uh, one in a positive way, one in a very negative way. Um, but it's, probably, but it's probably not a coincidence from that perspective when we realize that it's this same word, tselem, that represents, that, that's, uh, that's used for the image of God in Genesis and then used for idolatry everywhere after Genesis uh, 9-6. It's probably not a coincidence that where image of God language drops out, the language of idolatry picks up. The word hasn't dropped out. Tselem hasn't dropped out. But it's referring to something different after Genesis 9-6, um, to idolatry rather than the image of God. And so when we look at it in this way, um, in effect, 
The concept of idolatry replaces the concept of imaging God, of human beings imaging God after uh, Genesis 9-6, after those early chapters of Genesis. Um, and we can flesh this out a little bit further as we look at uh, the problem, the essential problem of image making or idolatry uh, in scripture. What is the problem uh, with idolatry? Well, and in one sense, that seems like an obvious question. Um, the, the problem of idolatry is that you're worshiping something other than God. Yes, um, but when we dig down deeper into uh, what scripture has to say about idolatry, what are some of the specifics, what are some of the um, specific reasons why idolatry is um, so terrible? Um, if we, we can begin to see some of these as we look at Exodus 22 uh, through 4. Um, there we go. And uh, so this is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. And uh, God begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And so that prohibition against graven images, against um, the making of images of God um, comes hand in hand with the uh, commandment that you shall have no other gods before me um, right at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. And um, this came up in previous weeks that, um, that it's, it's interesting, thinking of human beings as the image of God um, is really interesting in light of the fact that the Bible later in multiple instances, including this one, um, prohibits making any image of God. Um, how do we put those two uh, truths together? Well, one thing that one one way of doing it, one way that both uh, Jewish um, and Christian theologians have done it is, is that, I mean, basically the 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 conclusion you arrive at is that only God has the right to make an image of Himself. Um, it's not necessary, if God wants to make an image of himself, he can do so, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, what is wrong is us making an image of him. And, so it, and if you compare Genesis 1, 26 through 27 and Exodus 22 through four, uh, one of the interesting things that we find is, um, that, is that both the terms image and likeness are used in Genesis 22 through 4. Now, full disclosure, those aren't exactly the same words there in Genesis 20 uh, as we have in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Slightly different words are used for image and likeness here. Nevertheless, it is striking that these concepts, um, synonyms, um, these concepts of image and likeness appear side by side here, just as they appeared side by side in Genesis 1.26, when God makes human beings in his image and according to his likeness. Um, and that may not be an accident. Uh, so it may be that we are actually meant in some way to think back to God's making of his image for himself back in Genesis 1.26 through 27. And um, so, a part of what is wrong with image making 
is that number one, we don't have the right, that's God's own right, if he wants to do that, but not ours. Secondly, um, he's also already done it, um, and, um, and we are, uh, in a sense, there's a sense that we'll see further uh, in this lesson in which we are denying uh, his own um, work, um, his, his own uh, making of his own image uh, when we make other images of him. Uh, a second problem with idolatry that we see in scripture is that image making implies ownership in a sense. Um, we saw in the first week in particular that part of what it means just very fundamentally and to be made in the image of God is, um, is that we, um, is that any image, any image at all, takes its identity from the thing that it reflects. Um, if, I, if I take, if I hold a mirror up, the image that is seen in the mirror is, it takes, has its being, has its um, identity, has its meaning in the thing that it is reflecting. Um, that image in the mirror has no meaning, no substance apart from uh, the thing uh, that it is reflecting. Um, the same would be true if I, if I, if I paint a picture. Uh, the image in that picture um, it takes its bearing, uh, ultimately, from uh, the thing that it is depicting, um, and so on and so forth. Um, an image fundamentally takes its identity from what it reflects, um, and to a certain extent from its maker. Um, I won't, you know, get overly philosophical about this, but I think, you know, even on a superficial level, we can probably see, uh, recognize that any any work of art, for instance, um, bears the imprint of its maker. Um, that's unavoidable. Um, uh, I'm a photographer in my spare time, an amateur photographer, but uh, even when I am taking photographs. Uh, you might think that uh, the imprint of the maker is a little bit less visible in a photograph than it is, say, in a painting or a poem or something like that, um, or a musical composition. And perhaps so, um, perhaps it's not quite as obvious, but, um, but then again, we can look at different photographers and we can begin to, when we compare them, talk about uh, their styles. Um, a, a different style becomes apparent from one to another. And so it turns out, after all, that even in something like a photograph, um, the imprint of the, of the maker is, is there. Um, and, uh, and so this is absolutely true of the image of God in uh, Genesis 1, and 27. Um, part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we fundamentally take our identity from God. Um, and uh, our, our purpose, our, our meaning, um, comes from God. When, when we make an image, part of the problem of idolatry, again, is that um, image making implies ownership. When we make an image, um, now, now, now the roles are reversed to some extent. Now um, we are, um, now we are the maker and to some extent that image um, reflects us rather than us reflecting God. Um, and um, in fact, pagan idolatry, idolatry in the ancient world um, was, was very much aimed at manipulating the gods. 
manipulating them by making them beholding to human wills in some way. Uh, that's uh, what the whole enterprise of idolatry is at its root. Um, and so that's our second problem here. Um, image making implies ownership um, and, um, and is a t an attempt ultimately to manipulate God. Um, thirdly, idolatry attempts either to supplement or to replace the God in whose image we are made with an image of our own. Um, and in that sense, it's a reversal of Genesis 1:26 through 27. In Genesis, God makes human beings in his image. Um, in idolatry, the human being um, attempts to replace the God in whose image they are made with an image of their own making instead. Um, it's, it's a real reversal um, of the pattern of creation in Genesis 1:26 through 27. Um, an attempt at a role reversal between human beings and God. Um, okay, so that's the problem that, we're, that we see with idolatry. Um, but what happens, uh, I wanna focus on, specifically on what happens to the image of God. What happens to the image of God through this process of idolatry? Um, in other words, we're getting back to that question, what happens to image, what happens when image bearers become image makers? Um, and to see this, we need to go back to uh, the, the fundamental dignity of the image of God. We saw in the first couple of weeks that the real dignity of the image of God is its ability to reflect the likeness of the creator, to reflect God's likeness. And this is an incredible dignity. It's an incredibly high calling, uh, the highest calling that could possibly have been given to us, the highest dignity, the highest worth and value that could possibly be given to us, um, completely unlike any other creature on the planet, anything else that God has ever made with human beings. Um, he purposed us to reflect him, um, and to, to image him, to bear his likeness uh, within creation. This is an incredible dignity that was given to us, uh, an incredible self-worth that was given to us. But when we engage in idolatry, we are unwittingly, and I, I seriously doubt that most people are ever thinking about this, but we are unwittingly forsaking our own dignity. Uh, how so? Because God has already created his own image in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and that was us. He created his own image, and so in a sense, when we create some image of our own making of God, we are in the process denying um, God's making of his own image. In other words, denying um, our own imaging of God. Uh, we're denying our own dignity. It's as though we're throwing it in the trash can um, in the process of making some other image um, of God, we're, we're, we're unwittingly replacing ourselves. Not just replacing God, but also replacing ourselves um, at the same time. In addition to forgetting God, we forsake our own dignity and our own self-worth too. We degrade ourselves. Um, the process, the, the, the enterprise of idolatry necessarily is our own degradation um, of our self-worth. 
We see this in a couple instances in scripture. Uh, Psalm 106, 19 through 20 is one place that we want to turn. This is um, Psalm 106 recalling and reflecting on uh, the most infamous story of idolatry in the Old Testament, which is the golden calf in Exodus 32. Um, they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Now, uh, this might be one of the, this might be just about the only instance where the idea, the concept of the image of God is recalled on some level um, after Genesis in the Old Testament. Um, and we don't specifically see image of God here, uh, but there is a parallel there between the idea of the glory of God, um, which uh, we apparently possessed in some way, um, uh, uh, and the image the image of an ox. There's some sort of antithetical parallelism, a contrast, in other words, between the glory of God and the image of an ox. And uh, it may well be that uh, Psalm 106 is also um, remembering there the fact that we were originally made in God's image. And in that sense, um, we, we portrayed the glory of God. Um, but the glory of God has been exchanged through the process of idolatry for the image of an ox that eats grass. Um, we're lowering ourselves there, and uh, Romans picks this up in a way that shows the degradation of the human being even more. Um, if we go to uh, Romans 1, through 25. Um, so Paul is, Paul is definitely picking up uh, Psalm 106, 19, 19 through 20, and Romans 1, through 25. And he writes, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Uh, so according to Paul, first of all, Paul is picking up the idea of the exchange, um, the exchange of the glory of God for images, idols in other words, idolatrous images resembling um, mortal men, birds, animals, other creeping things. Uh, he's picking up that idea of the exchange from uh, Psalm 106. And then as he fleshes it out and uh, explicates that a little bit, um, he starts talking about the, in the, the lusts and the impurities of the human heart. Um, you know, um, and God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies um, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Um, we come back to the truth there that you become like what you worship inevitably. Um, in centering ourselves on God, we reflect God. Um, in centering ourselves on uh, creatures and animals, uh, we become more animalistic, less like God. And so Paul really spells out there the way in which um, idolatry leads to the degradation of the human person. 
It is our self-degradation of our self-worth. Um, and so this plays out as in, within his larger argument within uh, Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul shows how um, idolatry ultimately uh, evidences itself um, through all sorts of corruptions and perversions of human character. Um, the dignity of the Imago Dei, the dignity of the image of God, is lost through idolatry. That's essentially what Romans 1, 18 through 32 is showing us. And so all of this relates back in some way to Genesis 3, which was the first time that we tried to be independent of God. Um, in the fall, we saw a couple weeks ago, we attempted to be um, like God, knowing good and evil, determining good and evil for ourselves, um, and yet independent of God. Um, and um, in doing so, we became less like God than ever. Uh, now, this isn't surprising when you remember that, um, that whatever it means to be made in the image of God, uh, as image bearers, we fundamentally gain our identity from God, from God himself. So in seeking independence from God, um, we actually become less like him, not more like him. Um, uh, that very seeking of independence is a real problem um, for a being uh, that, is, that essentially takes its identity and purpose from God. Um, and so similarly, in idolatry, we deny the source of our true identity and we lose our dignity as a result. Um, and, um, and so to summarize a lot of this, uh, what scripture is telling us through this silent period between Eden and, and Christ, um, most of scripture, in which we don't hear much about the image of God, but the image of God seems to be replaced instead with the language of idolatry, uh, one of the things that we ultimately see come through very clearly is that all of our good is tethered to God. And as a result, the greater our independence from him, the more diminished and impoverished we become. And any time that we uh, give our worship to something other than God, um, not only are we forsaking God, but we are actually devaluing ourselves, forsaking our own inherent dignity in the process. Um, another way to say that is, in forsaking God, you inevitably forsake your own dignity. Um, and so, um, just a preview. Uh, in just a couple minutes here, I'll be able to leave a healthy amount of time for questions for once. Um, but uh, to preview where we're going from here, um, it's, it's, it also seems to be no accident that um, the, Im the image of God language reappears in Scripture with the arrival of Jesus Christ. Um, the New Testament, as we'll see next week, um, calls Jesus himself the image of God. Second um, Corinthians 4.4 and Colossians 1.15 are two great examples of that. Um, as the image of God, he is the uh, he's the new Adam who fulfills what we were meant to be. And ultimately, through Christ, the image of God is renewed in us, um, as we'll see in particularly in week seven. Um, and so that's where we're going from here. Um, but, okay, I have some time for questions. Um,
Any questions or comments? Yes, um, here, let me bring the microphone to you. And make sure that it's on. I'm not sure, you can try that. I'm not sure if that's on. Uh, here, one second, I think, is that on? Oh, it is, okay, um, sorry. Um, today's lesson, and I may have missed this point in the past, but what struck me so much was that anything that reflects God's image is alive, so even if we had a photograph of Christ, you know, maybe people would attempt to worship that photograph thinking it was the image of Jesus Christ, but it's not alive, and God doesn't want any image to reflect him that is not living and breathing, which is what we as humans and what Jesus Christ was, alive. Mm -hmm. and, um, so an image is always dead. It's, I guess, simple, but... Yeah, I know, it's a good point. Um, yeah, thank you for that. So, um, I think there may be something to that, that... Um, Yes, uh, let me repeat that. So um, the point that Joanne made was um, that any image that a person makes is dead. It's not, it's not living, whether it's a statue or uh, a photograph or whatever. Um, that image is, is dead. It doesn't have life. Um, and uh, Joanne's point was that, um, you know, God perhaps, one other problem with idolatry is that God perhaps does not want... Um, anything that is dead to represent him. Um, and I think one thing that we can definitely say is, I mean, this is, this is you know, the difference between God as creator and human beings um, in their creative endeavors is that uh, only God gives life. God, um, God actually brings his creations to life and gives them life of their own, which we cannot do. Um, and in that sense, our own, um, our own image making to the, to the extent that it attempts to do um, what only God can do is, um, is a very crude um, attempt um, that falls far short of what he himself does. Um, other questions or comments? know this is kind of an age-old question but without within churches across the world we have statues of Christ mm -hmm. we have quote idols yep. of him and he looks very different where you go how do you square that with not having idols mm -hmm. and if it truly is the image of God why does it vary so much and I know part of that is a person who's the artist doing it yeah. but why do we then still in some ways, worship a statue, which is, in a way, an idol. Right. Uh, great question. And so uh, let me take that in two parts. That's kind of a two-part question. So um, number one, uh, you're right. It's an age-old question. Um, should we have artistic depictions of Christ? Um, Christ is God. And um, do we, is, that, is that a violation? of the second commandment, for instance. Um, and um, so I think one way to, one thing that can help us think about that um, is 
is actually recognizing exactly what the prohibition against making, um, making an image uh, is in Exodus 22 through 4. So um, under that heading there, the problem of image making and idolatry, uh, that was where I tried to address that. But some of the um, basic problems of idolatry that we see are that number one, um, you know, only God has the right to make an image of himself. But another is that image making implies ownership. Um, and another is that image making attempts to supplement or replace God uh, with an image of our own making. When we look at image making in that sense, it becomes pretty clear. And I think this holds true through, through all of scripture and even more broadly in the ancient world with uh, the making of images of gods, with the making of idols. Um, this isn't just, what's at stake here is not just an artistic depiction. What's at stake here is uh, something that, um, I mean, you know, for instance, when somebody uh, draws a painting of Jesus or makes a statue of Jesus um, today, if it's purely an artistic depiction, I don't think that the artist in most cases has any illusions that they are claiming some sort of ownership or that it's necessarily an attempt to manipulate Jesus or uh, that they're attempting to supplement um, the actual Jesus for one of their own making. Um, and so uh, it may be that we're actually talking about something quite different when we talk about um, an, an artistic rendering than what Exodus, for instance, is talking about with the making of an idol. And now, uh, that's my own take on it. I will uh, fully admit that different traditions throughout the history of Christianity have had different feelings about that. And there are some traditions um, that would feel more or less like I do, that would have no problem um, with someone making an artistic depiction um, of Jesus and would differentiate that from the making of an idol. There are others who wouldn't, and, um, and the historic term for that is iconoclast, but um, we, um, so, so that's, that, that's you know, a difference um, in how Christians have felt throughout the ages. I can understand both points of view. Um, for me, it has been helpful to understand uh, the purpose um, of understanding what's behind the prohibition against idolatry in the Old Testament has helped me understand exactly what the Old Testament is talking about when it talks about images and idolatry, and I don't think that's the same thing as a pure artistic uh, rendering. Um, and then to get to the second part of your question, um, what do we do with the fact then that they all look different? Um, and if, if Christ is the image of God and, and yet all these depictions of him look different, um, uh, what, how do we think about that? And, and as you said, part of that has to do with the artist's own rendering. And um, we could have a very interesting conversation about the rendering of Jesus in, in art um, and what that says, um, what that says about us, and what that says about uh, our conceptions of Jesus. Um, that's an interesting conversation in and of itself. But, but I think um, I will also go back to something that was said last week: that um, the image of God. One thing that we see 
even by virtue of the fact that um, God made them male and female, both in his image, male and female, they're both his image in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Um, one thing that we see from that fact alone is that whatever it means to bear the image of God cannot mean uniformity. It can't mean that we all look the same or that we all um, image God in exactly the same way. Uh, the basic difference between male and female um, that we see in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 prohibits us from thinking that. And so um, it seems that, um, that diversity has always been a part of the image of God, that there are diverse ways in which um, we can represent God's image and likeness. Um, and, and so on the one hand, we have to remember that those artistic depictions of Jesus are just artistic renderings. None of them um, are actually what Jesus historically looked like, which we just don't really know. Um, but, um, but at the same time, they could actually be capturing a little bit of the theological truth um, that um, diversity has always been part of an inherent part of the image of God. Um, yes. Regarding the uh, art artistic viewpoint, um, there were many great artists that were masters. For example, Monet. Monet painted lilies mm -hmm. over and over and over again. And what really intrigued him about his paintings were the, how the light hit the water. Different perspectives of the light he tried to capture. And then you have, on the other hand, another school called the Hussin School of Artists. And the artists were creating God's creation, the mountains, the trees, the waters. And, uh, and they have them in museums. And you know, I enjoy going to a museum and looking at the artist's creation. But they were creating what God created. And not, I don't, I don't look at it to worship it, but God gave these people talent to create his image of his creation. So it depends what your intention is in your heart. If you put anything before God, of course it could be an idol. But I just wanted to make that clear, that God goes, does give talents to people. And if you use it for his honor and glory to reflect on his creation, I think that's a good thing. Thank you. Um, absolutely, I think uh, you know our our creativity itself, artistic creativity, uh, bears God's imprint, um, and um, and may even be part of part of part of an example of how we are made uh, in the image of God. Um, and, uh, and I agree with you too, that uh, what is in the, that the intent and the artist's intent matters a great deal. Um, and uh, I also liked what you said about, um, regarding Monet and Monet's tendency to paint the same subject again and again. Um, we get a little bit of a different perspective on the subject each time. And um, uh, I do think that's, uh, I think that's a helpful concept to keep in mind anytime we're doing um, 
theology that, uh, you know, the Gospels, for instance, I think can be um, a reflection of that same truth. That we have four Gospels and one Jesus. Um, not that one of the Gospels is any more true than the other. They're all true. They're all true depictions of Jesus Christ. But we have four different perspectives on the same Jesus um, because perhaps um, he was um, too, too large, uh, larger than life, too large to capture in um, a single narrative. Um, but um, I, I want to say one final word um, real quick in talking about just uh, art and uh, art versus idolatry. Um, and um, I do think we have to be careful. While, while I don't think that um, you know, an artistic rendering of Jesus is uh, necessarily the same thing that um, Exodus is talking about in the making of images and, and idols, um, it could be. Um, it doesn't have to be, but it could be. Um, and again, that may have to do a lot with the intent um, of the artist and, for that matter, the intent of the person uh, viewing that art and, and what use they're making of the art. Um, does this help you imagine, somehow help you imagine and therefore worship the actual Jesus better? Or um, are you in some way making Jesus in your own image? Those are two very different things. And, um, and so I think intent matters greatly. Um, um, okay, other questions or comments? First one, just a comment to kind of complement what you were saying. I think it's important in Exodus 4 to read it in the context of Exodus 5, mm. right? Because the follow-on statement is, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. So a lot of it really has to do with what's the intent. What's, if it's resulting in worship of the created item, then you've got a real problem. So I, I think that kind of helps to yeah, absolutely. the Thank context you. of where yeah. you're going. But my, my follow-on question is, in this context we've been talking today, most of the time we're talking about graven Im images, created images, idols. Yes. In the New Testament, and tell me if you're going to get to this in the next couple of weeks, a lot of times we start to see idols applied not just to graven images, but more to us as individuals, as people, that we make things idolatry. How, are you going to talk about that later, or if not, could you uh, give a little bit of thought on how that relates? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thanks, Chris. Um, so um, I probably won't really get to that um, in the next couple of weeks, so I'll say a little bit about it now. And I'm glad you brought that up because so there's often in the Old Testament when we talk about idolatry, we're talking about literal graven images. And we're talking about an actual physical object that you might bow down to. Um, and when we talk about idolatry uh, in the church today, and, and I think this is even true in the New Testament already, and I would even say that there are examples of this in the Old Testament, uh, we're, we're broadening the concept um, to refer not just to a literal physical object, but in a metaphorical sense, and anything can be an idol. Um, you know, your, your money can be uh, an idol, your career can be an idol, your education can be an idol, um, your children can be an idol, your spouse can be an idol, um, uh, anything can be an idol. Um, and it doesn't even have to be inherently bad. Um, 
anything that we put in God's place, that we allow to occupy the place in our heart that should be reserved for God, that primary place, um, becomes an idol. And um, so one thing that I think is helpful actually is to look at Exodus uh, 22 through 4 and see that uh, there are two separate commandments, but they go hand in hand with each other. The first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second um, speaks specifically to the making of graven images. Um, but if they go hand in hand with each other, then, then we really are talking fundamentally about the idea of worship. And, and it may be that that first commandment actually applies to the more broad sense of idolatry that we have, uh, having no other gods before me. Um, you can make anything your God. And, um, and, and uh, the first commandment, um, really applies to that. And, and I do think there are other examples. I mean, I, I don't have time to go to all of them now or can't necessarily think of all of them off the top of my head, but I think there are even examples in the Old Testament where you see the concept um, broadened in that way. So, um, so yes, there are those times when, the, when Scripture is talking about, in the narrow sense, about a physical object that we bow down to. Other times when it's talking more broadly um, and, um, but I don't think, um, uh, basically I think that the move that we, that we take today where we broaden the concept of idolatry is, is scripturally justified because I think scripture's already doing it. Yeah. Um, great question. Um, I think we have time for maybe one more. Uh, first on, the, on that last point, I see you have Colossians 3.10 up there and actually verse lost it um, just before that yeah verse 5 put to death therefore what is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry so there's mm, okay. a, a clear uh, metaphorical use of the word yeah I also want to go back to what you were saying about you have to be careful about art mm. yeah it made me think of um of numbers when Moses, when God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent, mm -hmm. I don't see the word image in there, but uh, God tells them to make an image of a created thing um, in order to save them from the snakes that were, were literal snakes in the camp were killing people. And, uh, uh, and then this idea turns up in John 3.14. Right. As, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So this image of a snake um, looked ahead to Christ, the image of God, but also the image of sin. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the reason this came to mind was in Second Kings, I think it's it, Hezekiah, it says he destroyed the serpent that, that Moses had made because at that time they were worshiping it. They were, they were making offerings to that snake. Mm -hmm. So this is something God told them to make, mm -hmm. but they used it the wrong way. So that's how we have to be careful about images. Yeah, thank you. Um, no, it's a good example. It's, it's uh, one of the most, uh, it's, a, it's a puzzling, strange passage in, um, numbers that is then recalled in John's gospel later uh, where God does tell them to make a bronze serpent 
um, and with negative three minutes on the clock, I don't, I can't, I can't possibly go into that story right now. But, um, but I think your your final point there. Um, uh, this is something God instructed them to do, and what really, um, what really matters is then the use that you're making of it afterward, and whether you are using said object in the way that God um, instructed or not. Um, and uh, I'll have to leave it there. But thank you all. Um, we'll be back next week to talk about Jesus as the image of God.